So this is Exodus chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 8 to 14 to begin. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So I've been talking about empire and shalom over the past couple of weeks, and Egypt provides us with a great picture of the seductive story that empire tells us. You know, back towards the end of the book of Genesis, uh, we're told how Joseph brought his father and his brothers and their family, 70 people in all, to come live in Egypt during this time of famine. And Pharaoh, out of gratitude for all that Joseph had done for Egypt, gave his family some of the best land in Egypt, the rich, fertile farmlands known as Goshen. This is the land of Goshen today. Still a very fertile area. You know, I always think of Egypt as all desert and pyramids. But, but this is a very, very fertile area, a very green area because of the flooding of the Nile. Um, and so it's a, this rich farmland, some of the richest farmland in the world. So the Hebrews settled there, and they multiplied, and for a long time, maybe as much as a couple hundred years, we're not sure, but for a long time, they had a pretty good life, probably a very comfortable life. The thing is, though, those Hebrews were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were the people chosen by God people who were called by God to live by trusting and depending on Him, uh, living in relationship with God so that all the world could come to see the goodness and the love of God through them. But now they were living in this empire called Egypt, where everyone believed that Pharaoh was the one who made life good. Pharaoh was the one in charge of keeping the, the multitude of gods that the Egyptians served happy. Uh, That was his job, and that was so that he would keep those gods happy so that the Nile would flood and uh, the rain would come when it was needed and the sun would shine. There'd be plenty of food for everyone. That was the worldview they lived in, uh, the story, you could say, they were living in. And it seems like what happened over the years was that the Hebrews were little by little seduced by their prosperity and their comfort into becoming like the Egyptians, serving the Egyptian gods, depending on Pharaoh and his power for the safety and control he seemed to offer, rather than trusting in the one true God. You could say they started living in the story of empire 
rather than the story of shalom. See, empire is, is a very seductive story because it promises us certainty in place of the ambiguity of faith. It, it promises us control in place of the need to trust. You know, as long as you are in the in-group in empire, uh, you're a part of the, you know, the in-group of people, you're pretty well taken care of. So, so empire can be really comfortable uh, because it puts me and it puts what I want at the center of things. And so empire is just as seductive a story today as it was back then. So the question I want to ask all of us is, which story are you living in? See, the problem with empire is that when you put your trust in it and live in the story of empire, depending on what the story of empire tells you, we eventually become enslaved to it. For the Hebrews in Egypt, that was a literal slavery. Yeah, for us, it's usually metaphorical, but it's not any less real. For example, one of the lies empire tells us is that money is the key to happiness. That's our world we live in, right? That's a story of empire. It's that money is the key to the good life. And so we have a whole nation of exhausted, stressed out, burned out people enslaved to the elusive pursuit of having enough money, right? That's what it does. Which story are you living in? Let me read on a little bit here in Exodus 2, <clears throat> starting in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the, sta in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Well, then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. If you look at the map, from Egypt to Midian, it's a long ways. He really ran. <laughs> yeah, I've always liked Moses. Uh, he became this amazing leader of the Hebrew people. He stood up to Pharaoh. He won the Israelites their freedom. He led them in the desert for 40 years. And he had this really intimate relationship with God. It says Moses talked to God face to face. Can you imagine what that must have been like? And at the same time, like pretty much everyone whose story is told in the Bible except for Jesus, Moses was far from perfect. He messed up now and then, and sometimes he messed up pretty badly. So in that way, he's a lot like us, right? Which is comforting. Moses was born into a time when the Hebrews were enslaved. Pharaoh was on a rampage. He was having all the Hebrew baby boys killed by ordering them thrown into the Nile. 
And Moses' mother sort of complied. She put Moses in a basket and floated him away on the Nile. And so Pharaoh's daughter then saw him and rescued him, if you've read the story. And then Moses was raised in Pharaoh's household. Think about that. Raised in Pharaoh's household. He was raised then as an Egyptian. He was raised, in fact, as Egyptian royalty. He was schooled. He had to have been schooled in all the ways of Egypt and and shaped by the story of empire. The comfort, the apparent security of wealth, the use of power and force to control other people. I mean, it would have been pretty much impossible for Moses not to have been shaped by that story growing up as basically Pharaoh's grandson. Was a young man... Moses lived in that story of empire. But it didn't totally shape him because Moses also shared God's heart for the oppressed. That's what that whole episode of him being upset about the Hebrew being beaten by the Egyptian shows us. So one day when Moses saw a Hebrew slave being beaten by his Egyptian master, his heart was moved to help him. But the way he helped, Moses' instinctive response, you know, what he probably did without even thinking was to use the ways of empire. Force, power. He killed the Egyptian. In the emotionally focused course that a lot of us are engaged in, we call that acting out of our autopilot. We all have an autopilot, right? Our autopilot is what we do instinctively when our emotions are triggered. You know, when we're stressed or when we're tired or when we're angry or frustrated or, or disappointed. How do we respond instinctively in those situations without even thinking about it? It's our automatic response. Hopefully not to kill somebody, right? But, but maybe to lash out in words. Um, or it could be to withdraw, it could be to isolate, could be to self-medicate with maybe alcohol or uh, pornography or eating a whole carton of ice cream. Our autopilot is the response that results from the ways of that empire has us in its grip. It's not just that we live in empire. It's not just that we live in the story of empire. The problem is that empire lives in us. That's the real problem. And that's what Jesus wants to set us free from. He wants to deliver us from the empire within us and fill us and transform us so that we can live in his story of shalom, whether or not our outward circumstances change. I thought it was really interesting that The end result for Moses of killing the Egyptian was fear. We think the ways of empire are going to give us control or security or peace or happiness. That's what its story tells us. We think that acting on our impulses, acting out of our autopilot will relieve the stress and make us feel better. That's why we do it. And maybe it will for a minute. But the fruit that grows from those ways of empire are always things like fear or shame. The question to ask is, which story 
are you living in? Moses, at that point in his life, was still living primarily in the story of empire. So in fear for his life, he fled to the desert. But God was in that too. One more section I'll read from Exodus 3, verses 1 to 6. says this. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. It's like, that's weird. I'm going to go look at it. And when the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see. uh, uh, Hang on. Let me read that again. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the Lord, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. I recently read a story about a a neurosurgeon by the name of Paul uh, Kalanithi, I think is his last name. Uh, He was a brilliant young man. He was educated in Stanford and Yale. Uh, He'd excelled in his medical training. And what he had been taught growing up, or in school, I guess really, in school and had fully embraced, so you could say the story he was living in was that his patients were to be viewed as medical problems. And his job as a surgeon was to eradicate the problems, not the patients, but the the health issues that they had, right? Uh, And to do that in the best way possible. His goal was to solve the riddle of whatever medical issues the patients faced so as to keep the patient alive, but never get involved in the life and the relationships of the patient. In other words, never make it personal. And then just as Paul was on the brink of becoming a successful surgeon, he was himself diagnosed with brain cancer. And he was forced to look at disease not as a problem-solving surgeon, but from the level of a living, yearning, sick person. And he came to see that what he longed for the most as a patient really wasn't the cold expertise of the surgeon. I mean, of course, he still wanted his surgeon to be good at surgery, right? Still wanted that. But he realized that even more important was their personal, compassionate ministry. Yeah. Paul said he came to realize that the only way to truly heal someone is to create space for them to tell their story to give your person to them, and then to accompany them in their journey of sickness. Well, I think Moses had to go through a similar transformation before he was ready for that burning bush encounter. Moses always had a heart for the oppressed, but he was schooled and shaped in the story of empire. 
And just like Paul initially believed the best way to help the sick was through cold, detached, technical expertise, or in other words, through maintaining control and using power, Moses also thought the best way to help his fellow Hebrews, initially he thought, was to take control and exercise force. At least that was his autopilot. But the story of empire and the ways of empire never lead to shalom. The ways of the kingdom of this world never lead to the kingdom of God. Which is why we're going to keep asking that question, which story are we living in? So before Moses could be ready to meet with God and go deliver the Israelites from slavery, God had him spend 40 years in the middle of nowhere tending sheep. Real transformation takes time, doesn't it? (laughs) Remember, Moses had been raised as Pharaoh's grandson. He'd been raised as an Egyptian prince. And God needed to get the empire out of Moses before Moses could get the Hebrews out of the empire. Pharaohs are often depicted as holding a stick. There's a, that's a, a carving, I think, somewhere in Egypt. And I don't know if you can tell, but that pharaoh in his right hand is holding a stick in the carving there. That's a pretty common way of depicting them. Um, and because a stick was a sign of the power and the control that Pharaoh exercised over everything. It was a picture of the, the, the force that Pharaoh could use to beat others into submission and make what he wanted to have happen, happen. Well, the problem is, if you're a shepherd, you can't lead sheep by beating them with sticks. They'll just scatter. You lead sheep with your voice speaking to them and calling them. It's really a a kind of a very personal way uh, of leading. So God had Moses spend 40 years learning to lead like a shepherd, in other words, to lead like God, rather than leading with a stick like Pharaoh. Only then was Moses ready to listen to God. Only then was Moses ready to to step into God's story of shalom and and listen to and, and trust God's voice. Now, he still didn't do it perfectly, but he was willing, and God could work with that. So isn't it interesting that both Moses and this Paul Kalanithi were transformed, you could say. They were set free from some of those ways of empire by passing through a kind of death. Moses, out in the desert, cut off from everyone he knew, Tending sheep for 40 years. Now there's a death experience, right? For Paul Kalanithi, it was brain cancer. That seems like a pattern. It seems that we often have to come to the end of ourselves. We have to see in our experience that empire doesn't lead where we thought it would lead. That being in control is an illusion. But the story of empire is a lie. The Hebrews in Egypt had to become slaves. Moses had to watch sheep for 40 years. And Paul Kalanithi had to suffer through brain cancer. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it'll bear much fruit. That's really different from the story of empire. Yeah, so which story are you living in? The story of empire has pretty deep roots in us. 
I mean, sure, we all want to follow Jesus, right? That's why we're here. We all want the joy and the peace and the love that are wrapped up in his shalom. But I also want things to happen my way. I want to feel like I'm in control of my life. I want to have enough money in the bank so I don't have to depend on God. I want to be able to make people do what I think they should do. Or at least have the freedom to call them idiots when they don't, right? Yeah, at least. I want to wrap my life and my family in comfort and safety and prosperity so that they're never exposed to risk. Or should I say, never need to trust God. I want to spend my time with people who are like me, who agree with me, who don't challenge the way I think or live. I want to be free to define and shape my life and my morals and my values, the way I use my time and my talents and my money by what I think is right, by what I want. So which story are you living in? That story of empire has such deep roots in all of us, but living in empire always leads to slavery. And Jesus came to set us free. So Jesus said, those who love their life will lose it. But those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus wasn't making a threat there. I think that's often how that's interpreted. He was just describing reality. He wasn't saying we should despise this natural world or that our everyday lives are unimportant or unspiritual and we should just focus on escaping to heaven. Not at all. That's not what he's saying. Jesus was telling us that if we spend our lives living in that story of empire, we always end up enslaved, maybe to money or to fear, to power, to our various addictions, to getting my own way. And then we'll always end up disappointed because in the end, the story of empire always proves itself to be a lie. It doesn't deliver what it promises. But if we seek Jesus and call on his name and forsake what we need to forsake, which is a kind of dying to ourselves, right? When we forsake what we need to forsake, If we return to loving God and loving others with all our heart and all our mind, all our soul and all our strength, that will lead us more and more to living in this life, in our everyday lives, in God's story of shalom. That's what Jesus wants for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. So God's life, his shalom, where we find it, is in his presence, right? It's one of the reasons we gather every week to worship, um, that we we come together because in his presence we're changed. In his presence, uh, God does his work in us to transform us. And and it's, it's one of the main reasons, too, that we share communion every week because it's another way that God's grace, God's presence comes and fills us once again. So we're gonna share communion.